Wow, if I can just live up to the video, we'll be okay, right? Okay, open your Bible. You are here, right? Where are you today? Say Seacoast. Yeah, you should know that at least, all right? I'm trying to help you figure out where you are and where you want to go, where you want to go. Turn to Romans chapter 12 with me. My name is Pastor Dale. It's a joy to meet you. If I haven't yet, I'd love to meet you out in the plaza in the rain, but I have ordered sun to pop out right at about... 10, 15. So just wait and see if I'm a prophet, okay? I'm not. <laughs> but anyway, we'll, we'll think positively anyway. But welcome so much. I'd like to welcome you to Seacoast. You know, with any journey, we're going to be talking about you are here today. We're going to be starting with Romans chapter 12, verse 1. But for any journey to succeed, and think about this, anything you're trying to do in life, you need to be able to answer three questions. Where am I? And hopefully you know how you got there. Because if I don't know where I am, I can't plot a course to go forward. Where am I? What's my destination? Where is it that I'm trying to get to? What am I trying to be or become? We'll we'll see later. And then thirdly, what's the best route for progress? And in this series, we're going to be answering all three of those questions as we work our way through Romans chapter 12. If you take away any one of those, you're in trouble, right? I mean, they're a set. I've got to have all three. I've got to know where I am, where I'm trying to go to, and then what's the best route to get there if I'm going to make real progress and succeed in any part of my life. Take away any one of those three, and you are sitting on the side of the road, either totally lost, which feels really weird. I've been there, been there. I hate being lost. It just feels very weird. But the other thing is, when I realize I'm lost, because I'm a guy, I usually don't ask for directions. Amen? That's right, because real men don't ask for directions, at least not until they get really frustrated. And thanks to GPSs, now we can not admit that we're lost. We just stop and punch it up and let it direct us. But either you are really lost and sitting by the side of the road going nowhere, or else you just are moving, but you're probably wasting a lot of gas, a lot of energy, a lot of time and money just going in circles, kind of wandering around. When it comes to our spiritual journey, our relationship with Jesus Christ, I really believe it is a lot like that. That the reality is God does not really want you wasting time spiritually. And I think a lot of times in my life as a Christian, I've kind of wondered, okay, yeah, I, I have Jesus. I've accepted Jesus Christ. I'm, I, I'm in. I mean, I, I bought in really early in life in my case. But do I really know where am I spiritually? How, how do I gauge that? And then how do I know what to do to make progress? We're going to be answering those questions. Now, you know, Jesus kind of put the goal in this way. You know, the goal we know, big picture, is heaven. So don't write me a note this week and say, Dale, don't you realize the destination is heaven? Uh, We're not talking about that destination in this series. We know that our ultimate destination is heaven, supplied by the grace of God. But the reality is, while you're on this earth, where are you going spiritually? If someone asked you that this week, how would you answer? What's your goal? What are some of the destinations that God wants us to move toward, like the big map behind me, to help us move forward? 
Jesus, in one of his parables, probably summarized it this way. Jesus said, the goal is to end life and to hear the Father say, and if you know this phrase, repeat it after me, well done, good and faithful servant. That's kind of the destination I'm talking about. How do you move in that direction? How do you make progress on your journey with God? Because the destination that we're going to be studying and talking about really isn't a place. So you kind of got to a little bit step out of the out of the map behind you and realize that this map that we're talking about this journey that we're talking about really isn't a place or if it is it would be a town called maturity well done impact significance for Christ you in Christ probably the best way I can summarize the series is this This journey is not about going somewhere. Uh, It's more about becoming someone. It's not about going somewhere. It's about becoming someone. It's becoming you in Christ. So let's pray as we get started. Father God, thank you so much for your word and for the wisdom of it. Thank you for what it's going to teach us today about who we are, where we are right now, if we have placed our faith in Christ. Most of the people in this room have done that. Some in this room have not done that yet. And that's okay because they're here and they're seeking. And we welcome their questions. You welcome them. The Father, for the majority of us, we would say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. I place my faith in Jesus. So, Father, for those in the room, we pray that you would teach us um, where we need to go next. In Christ's name, amen. Romans 12, verse 1. Let's go. Here we go. First, we're going to take over half of the sermon to study one word. It's a deep theological word. Are you ready? It's the word. Can you guess what it is? Therefore. There it is. Boom. Therefore. This is a transition point in the book of Romans. And I know that we're jumping in about two-thirds of the way through the book. Romans 16 chapters, 12 of them or 11 of them have already completed and, and, and 12, chapter 12 begins with this one word, therefore. And the reason I want to take over half the sermon to unpack that is because if you don't understand what that word's significance is, then you'll mess up everything else in the rest of Romans. In other words, Romans is saying that the rest of this book, in chapter 12 in particular, is a response to something. It's a response to something that God has already done. It's interesting how he summarizes what he has done right before this in chapter 11. So look at it with me, beginning in verse 33. He says, oh man, he says, and this is him kind of wrapping up the first 11 chapters. And Paul writes this, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, exclamation point. I got to read this like he wrote it. So pardon me if there's a little more passion in this thing, because this is not cold theology. This is the Apostle Paul finishing the whole story of God from creation to, to through Christ and what he's done. And this is his response. Oh man, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or become his counselor? Who has first given something to him that it might be paid back to him again? Implication, no one. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now back to the book. Therefore. Therefore. So what was he responding to? 
Sometimes it's been said a picture is worth a thousand words. If a picture is worth a thousand words, then this video is worth a million. It's a summary of the story of Romans 1 through 11. You. Look at your eyes. Look at them. Speckled. Colorful. Each one unique. And I created every one of them. I created everything. The universe. And you. I gave you your personality. I made you pure. Complex. And every day, I give you life. I love you. But something happened. You cheated on me. You didn't trust me. You sinned. You cut yourself off from me. And although you're still alive, you are slowly dying. So you looked for other things. to fill the void but nothing works it just kills you faster and it separates us more and more destroyed, but to know me, so I became one of you, a fragile creation, I was tempted, but I never sinned, I came to save you, you have so many sins, and they have a cost, someone has to die, you or me. So I took on your sin and traded in my life for yours. And I died in your place. Because I love you. Then
Will you follow me? I love the fact that it ends with that question, will you follow me? What we're going to be studying today is the therefore. I think that will you follow me question is the therefore question. We're going to be looking at what it means to follow Christ, not just be a fan of Christ, not just to kind of applaud him and who he is as a great role model in history, but if he really did all that was depicted in that video, then what is our response to that? And with that, we want to take you to the word of God. So go to Romans chapter 12 with me. We're going to unpack the therefore a little bit first because the big news, the good news is that the therefore is that God in that video is depicted as doing all that he did. But the even better news is that this life depicted, this new life that it, that it shows is, is all by the grace of God. That the good news is that it's all by his grace that this is available to us. When we talk about all by God's grace, that we are alive in Christ by the grace of God, we're talking about more than just having our sins forgiven. I think when I grew up as a kid, I think that was my story. That was my focus was early on in life. I kind of knew I didn't want to go to hell and I wanted to go to heaven. And I was taught very clearly Jesus needed to pay for my sins. And he did. And I needed to put my faith in him and he would forgive me my sins. And forgiveness is cool. It's great. It's where it starts. What we're going to see is that it's a whole lot more that the good news or the gospel of Christ, as it's called, is more than just that. It's forgiveness from the punishment of sin. It's freedom from the power of sin in our lives so we can actually begin to change and it's a future that is secured for us in heaven forever and ever where we'll be free from not only the the punishment the presence but even the very uh, the punishment and the power but even the very presence of sin grace supplies it all and it's grace that i think is at the heart of romans 1 through 11 i think it's grace was the single biggest idea in romans 1 through 11 that caused the gospel to be nicknamed the good news if you want to read one book to help you unpack this even deeper i'm going to recommend this to you this week uh get philip yancey's book so what's so amazing about grace by philip yancey one of the my favorite books on uh, this topic yancey tells a story in here that i want to start with today and which he talks about uh, another person that's a hero of his, C.S. Lewis, one of the uh, key thinkers of of the last century. And and Lewis, uh, as a a skeptic-turned-follower of Jesus, was uh, it tells this story. It was was during a British conference on comparative religions. Excerpts from around the world, experts, excuse me, experts from around the world were gathered debating what, if anything, Uh, What belief was unique to the Christian faith? They began eliminating the possibilities. Incarnation? Well, other religions had different versions of God's appearing in human form. How about resurrection? Again, other religions had accounts of return from the dead. The debate went on for a while until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room and he said, what's all the rumpus about? And he asked, and and he he heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's Unique contribution among the world's religions. Lewis responded, that's easy. It's grace. After some discussion, the conferees had to agree. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seemed to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist has their eightfold path. The Hindu doctrine of karma. The Jewish covenant. The Muslim code of law. Each of these offers a way to earn God's approval. Only Christianity dares 
to make God's love unconditional. And I think that, in essence, is what precedes that word in Romans 12. The therefore, more than anything else, points us back to the incredible concept of the grace of God. Now, most of you may be thinking right now, okay, Dale, grace of God. I mean, I think I got that. We sing about it almost every week. And, you know, Amazing Grace is like top, you know, top 10 of all time tunes to sing and hear and memorize. And so I, you know, I get grace. Can we talk about something deeper? It makes sense to me. If that's your response, uh, can I dare to say you may not get grace? You may not understand grace when you say, I get it. It makes perfect sense. Now, I'm not saying I don't believe it because I certainly believe it, but do I really understand it as something that makes perfect sense? The, you know, Lewis goes on in his book or his statement and, and Yancey in his book to basically say this, grace makes no sense. Grace is not the way the world works. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe it, but I also believe that it is incredible and it is somewhat unbelievable. I think that when the Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes Romans 11, verses 33 to 36 that I read right before our big therefore of the morning, when he says, God's ways are unfathomable, no one would think that up. And I want to show you today first that grace truly is that unbelievable thing that you must believe because it is true. In fact, as we delve into the depths of grace a little bit, my prayer for you and me is that we end up the morning kind of saying, you know, oh my gosh, I never really, I kind of have forgotten how amazing grace really is. Can God really love me with no strings attached? Where he loves me in spite of who I am, not because of who I am. What really makes grace so amazing? The gospel so such good news. Well, let's walk our way through the book of Romans. I want to cover in the next 10 minutes or so, 11 chapters out of Romans. You believe that? Well, you better. Here we go. Lunch is on order for three o'clock this afternoon. It's on me. Here we go. Romans chapter one, Romans 1, 14, before he unpacks it, Paul expresses what he's most excited about. He says in Romans 1, 14, for I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. In other words, to the most intellectual people of my day as well as to the, to the barbarians he said, of my day. Now, it doesn't matter how smart or how dumb you are, how educated or uneducated. It doesn't matter what culture you come out of. He says, I am under obligation both to the wise and to the foolish. For, so for my part, I'll put it on the screen, I am eager to preach the gospel to you, the good news to you also, who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone who places their trust in Christ. To the Jew first, but also to the Greek. That the gospel is good news. And to understand this incredible, unbelievable good news, you have to first understand two things. The nature of the problem it addresses, and then the incredible solution. And in your outline I've given you, if you want to take a few notes... Here's how I summarize it, because I want to whip through this part really quick. Number one, the human problem, sin, is far worse than we ever imagined. It is far worse than we ever imagined. Now, I don't have time to go through all of Romans chapters 1 through 3, but but if you read through it this week even, this is what you're going to learn. You're going to learn that this human problem is far worse for several reasons. One, and I've typed these out for you, it's, 
it's universal, meaning all are without excuse. Scripture clearly says that it doesn't matter what culture you come out of, how religious you are, that trying to approach God on your own merits is a waste of time because sin is a, is a universal, we are all without excuse before God type thing in chapter 1. Chapter 1 also says it's progressive. When it gets into our system, it, it, uh, it, it, it ruins us. It, it, it affects us. It affects our thinking about the world and the way we view creation. It affects our thinking about sexuality and how we approach our sexuality in relationships. It screws those up and it screws up our, our lives and, and eventually will ruin even our, our cultures that we live in. It is progressive going from bad to worse. That's chapter 1, last half of the chapter. If you look at chapter 2, the big idea is this. Maybe we can just follow the rules and fix ourselves. Chapter 2 teaches that the rules can't fix it because all of us are still guilty. More rules don't fix it. Chapter 3 talks about religion. talks about whether you are a Jew coming out of the, the Jewish context of knowing the true God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, and, and understanding His law and having His book, and, or whether you're a pagan from the backwoods as a barbarian, or whether you're a follower of Greek philosophy. He, he basically says this. He says religion can't fix it because all of us are still guilty of sin. Look at verse 9. I'll pop it up for you on the screen. It says, What then? Are we better than they, meaning the Jews, better than those who are not Jewish? He says, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. It's true that the world is full of uh, highly religious people. But what we're talking about in this whole series and, and in the Scriptures is not the secret to being more religious. It's the secret to engaging on this journey with God to help you get from where you are to where God wants you to be. It's interesting that you say, well then why, why is it so difficult? Why was it so bad? And, it, and, he, and he really summarizes it in chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. And it's so, it, you know, we can't fix ourselves because it's a heart issue, not a behavior issue. It's expressed in our behavior, but it's rooted in our heart. And if you don't have a, if you don't have a, a, a different heart, there's no way in, in the long run you're going to ever ever become what god wants you to be you know it's a heart-based issue this week if you read through romans 3 a little bit and as you do the homework for your for your life groups or as you do your personal time with god which is by the way supplied for you on an insert today we went back to that so there's an insert for you so make sure you pull this out stick it in your bible and use it to guide you this week but listen to some of the language of romans 8 he says, for it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who really seeks for God that is on their own. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. Their throat is like an open grave. Their tongue is, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursings and bitterness. Their feet run and are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their path, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, that's quite an indictment of humanity. Now, why all the alls and nuns and everyone language? And it's because it is a heart issue. That at the, in, the, in the depths of our hearts, we need to be transformed. And that's the story of Romans that gets really cool. 
Because first, he just absolutely depresses you if you read chapters 1 through 3. It's like, you know, man, there's no hope for humanity. I mean, because I realize that, wow, I am really, really lousy on the inside. I am, I am, I am bad. You know, I, I, read a, I read a quote once from a, from a Russian poet who was a Christian, and they asked the guy, you know, can you describe how, how bad is the, is the, are the evil people of the world? And, and, he, and, and just, if I can paraphrase him, he said, well, I can't tell you how bad the evil people of the world are, but I can tell you how bad the good ones are, and they're really messed up. And he basically says, it doesn't matter how good you are, the reality at the heart level, you need a new heart, you need a new life. As that video depicted, you know, we all have more sin in our, in our gut and our life than we ever even are aware of. We actually look and probe the motives of the heart and why do I do what I do? And, you know, I realize, wow, God, sin really has infected me and it pervades uh, every area of my life. But that's when the story takes a twist. Because in chapter 3, verse 21, you hear this verse, and I'm going to give you some highlights from it. But now, look at chapter 3, 21. But now, apart from the law, so... Your performance is not the issue. It's not keeping the law of God. Apart from the law, through faith in Christ Jesus, and that faith we later learn is a gift from God itself, we are justified as a gift by His grace, down in verse 24. See, a gift by His grace, it just keeps coming back. The God says, you know, your human problem is so bad, it's going to take a radical solution. And that radical solution is grace. Yancey made a really good point in his book that uh, was interesting. He said a lot of times people think that, you know, becoming a Christian, going to church and everything is kind, is kind of a self-improvement program so that church helps me improve to a certain level where I deserve God's forgiveness. And, and, they, and, and we begin to think that way. It's very easy to think that way because all of our culture kind of operates that way, right? If you perform to a certain level, you get the job. If you perform to a certain level, you win the game. If you perform to a certain level, your parents will like you and tell you what a good person you are. But when you screw it up, the world wants to dump on you. Amen? I mean, that's where, that's where it is. That's how it works. That's what Lewis calls ungrace. But the issue is this. It's not about becoming good enough that God can be fair and let you in and not let someone else in. And, and Lewis shocked me. I remember the first time I read this a few years ago. He said, grace is never fair. You don't want God to be fair. Grace is never fair. It's way better than fair. It's free. Think about that. Grace is never fair. It's far better than fair. It's free. It is an undeserved, totally free, no strings attached gift from God. And what I'm saying to you this morning is unless you really grasp that, then all of the next six weeks of our study of Romans chapter 12 will be based on the wrong thing. Because I think unless God grabs your heart with the idea that, oh my gosh, even though, yeah, I'm, I'm better than my neighbor, I'm better than this person, and yeah, I'm changing, and I'm, I'm following Jesus, and I'm trying to do all things right, you know, but unless you realize that, you know something, that's not the basis of your life. Your life is by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift from God, not as a result of works, lest any one of us should boast. But you see, we live in an environment of ungrace. 
We'll come back to that again another time. So in review, the human problem is as far worse than we can imagine. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. If you want a peg verse for it today, Romans 3.23. So it's going to take a miracle to change that around. And that's the really cool part about grace is that because the human condition is far worse than humanity wants to think of itself. Because humanity, face it, I mean, you listen to the news. Their view of themselves is, you know, we're not all that bad. In fact, you know, I love the fact that it brings the best out in humanity. You know, you hear these phrases all the time. The reality is our problem is a heart problem that needs a radical solution. And we're far worse off than we think we are. But then the solution is even far better than most of you even imagine. The divine solution is far better than a human being could ever dream up. I love that. What do I mean by that? Three quick statements. Romans 5, Romans 4 and 5 progresses to begin to say, by grace you are justified. Now I'm going to teach you a little theology this morning that's important for life. So don't be afraid of it, okay? A few big words, but I want to define them. Justification means it's more than just being forgiven of your sin. It means that you are forgiven of your sin because Jesus takes it on himself. Remember in the video how the pure, unpolluted glass representing Jesus gets all the crud and the sewage poured into it? That's you and me, okay? And, you know, and, and the reality is, though, that there's a second part to justification, and, and it's Romans 5.1. Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what that means is because you're at peace with God because not only are you forgiven of your sin, but all of the righteousness of Jesus is attributed to your life. It's credited to your account before God. So when God looks at me now, in spite of the way I am, which I'm way less than Jesus, okay? Let's get that out. I'm not Jesus in the way I'm living a lot of the time. But yet God relates to me as if I'm his own son, Jesus the imputation, the crediting of the righteousness of Jesus. That's way better than just being forgiven, amen? See, you know, if I'm just forgiven, it means I go back in the garden as Adam and Eve were before they sinned. But I'm telling you, when you relate to God, you are way better than Adam and Eve before they sinned. Because they didn't have the righteousness of Christ. So not only do you have no sin to your account, you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now that's security. We'll come back to this later. Better than the Garden of Eden. You are sanctified in chapter 6 and 7. What's that mean? What well, means that you are set free, but it's more than being set free. See, I love this. A lot of people say, oh, sanctification means I'm set free to no longer be controlled by sin. Sin is not my master. I can begin to, to grow and, and not be controlled by it. But it's, see, it's more than just freedom from sin. It's the power to become what you ought to be. See, that's even way cooler, isn't it? Say yes. Am I the only one excited about this this morning? Okay. I know. I'm talking so fast today. I'm like dumping the truck on you. All right. But we're going to have seven weeks to slow it down after today. But today I got to keep moving. So here we go. In other words, the reality is this. Sanctification is more than just being free from the power of sin. It's having the power of God's spirit living within you so you can actually abide in him, depend upon him, and actually, wow, that's much better than just being freed from an old master. You now have a new internal source of power called the spirit of God living in you. That's sanctification. And then when you still sin, which Romans 7 predicts you will, warns you that you will, It says you will still most certainly be glorified. And that's beyond just the hope of heaven. It's knowing that you are sealed and secured 
forever. That you will be perfected and live forever as a co-heir with Christ in Romans 8. Now, because I wouldn't have time to teach all this in detail, here's the thing I gave you today. This little insert, you need to pull out, stick it in your Bible, and keep it for the next seven weeks at least. It's a little thing produced by uh, Freedom in Christ Ministries. And I really like this because it defines your identity in Jesus. It defines it in, in the sense of your acceptance, your security, and your significance, all being found in Christ. And it gives you a whole ton of Scripture to look up and learn and meditate on and to remind you that this is who you really are. So when we say you are here in the series, this is part of what we're talking about. You are here. In other words, to summarize it, you are here in Christ in His grace. You are here in Christ under His grace. If you've trusted Him as your Savior, this is who you are. So that's your starting point. And I thank God for that. It's an incredible place to start. But the question is, and the reality is, I'm not where I want to end up. Because this doesn't really reflect totally who I am and all that God wants me to become, not after I go to heaven, but what about right here while I'm still living on planet Earth? And that's where, therefore, introduces what I call kind of the spiritual GPS for spiritual growth. It begins to, to lay down where you want to go, what you want to become, and what path you take for progress under his grace got it here we go so this now moves us into the heartbeat of the series but i wanted to take most of our time this morning laying the foundation of grace laying the foundation of your identity in christ because if you don't keep coming back to that after every sermon in this series you will begin to think that this series is about performing your way to perfection and that is not the goal that's not the goal. So remember, your starting point is in Christ, in His grace. But then today, I'm going to cover just one short verse. Here's how you get started, and I think it's foundational to everything else. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That's all I want to talk about for the next ten minutes. Here we go. Next seven minutes. Eight, maybe. Here we go. <laughs> Number one, he says, I urge you. Why does he say that? I think he says it because grace demands an urgent response for all of us. In other words, he's saying, man, this is not optional. This is not just for the super Christian. This is for everyone who tastes the grace of God comes to know Jesus Christ, is justified, sanctified, will be glorified, all of that secured by grace. Man, you can't not respond to this. But yet sometimes people do. Sometimes people learn about how Christ gets them into heaven, into the kingdom, and then they stop there as if they're just going to sit on the spiritual side of the road until they drop dead and go to heaven. Don't sell your life so short. This is for everyone. I urge you by the mercies of God. I love that phrase. He says, I don't, he says, I don't, he says, I don't, I urge you by the mercies of God. When I unpack that, here's what he means. We come to God not to get something more from him, but because he has already given to us. It's, it's based on his mercies, plural, the, the mercies, the things that he has given you that you never earned. You know, when you give mercy to someone, you don't give them what they deserve, right? 
but you give them mercy. And, and all of the blessings of being in Christ is what I think he's referring to. I think he's talking about the various expressions of the mercy of God. Because I don't want what I deserve. Never ask God to give you what you deserve. It's dangerous. You want grace, not what you deserve. Amen? Yeah. So realize that. That's what I mean. It's because of the motivation comes from, wow, in light of the mercies of God, it's for all of us. But yet, no one would think, well, but wow, if God's given me so much grace, I, I want to say thank you. I want to give him something. Make sense? I mean, yeah, I mean, certainly, because every religion, you know, most of them, uh, other religions bring sacrifices to God because you're trying to bargain with the gods. You're trying to sweeten up the gods. You're trying to get the gods to like you, get the gods to answer your prayers, get the God to bring more rain, more fertility, whatever, okay? So, uh, you know, well, if Jesus has already supplied everything that God wants, we don't need to bring more sacrifices. So it leaves the question, so what do we do? What's God want us to do? And then he gives the heart of the passage. Therefore, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. The answer in the end is this, God wants you. God wants you, but he wants you alive sacrificed to him he wants you to come and bring yourself i like the fact that he says i want you to be a living sacrifice because tell you the truth i'd rather live than die amen yeah at least physically but you know what he's saying is this he says i want you present your bodies a living sacrifice now it's interesting to me that in a book so spiritual as the bible he says i want you to bring your bodies as a living sacrifice i would expect him to say your heart your soul your spirit. So why does he say your body? Here it is. It's a deep theological thought. Because you live there. See, when you bring your body, you're bringing all of you. Usually when I go somewhere, I take my body with me. You do that? Yeah. You know, in other words, in this passage, your body is a metaphor for your life. It's for all of you. Bring everything, everything about you, and say, God, I'm yours. And be willing to sacrifice yourself to him. Now, is this type of radical thing make sense? I love the next phrase. He says, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. God wants you alive, but sacrifice, which is your spiritual, or it could be translated reasonable or rational service of worship. That offering myself fully is at the heart of real worship and real life. That when I offer myself, uh, it's the heart of spiritual worship. That, you know, when we talk about what is worship, the worship is way more than a service that you attend. It's a lifestyle in this passage. Now, it includes coming to the service as a worshiper. So it includes that. It's it's. It's more than a service. It's also a lifestyle. And I love the fact that he says, this is your reasonable service of worship. Wow, now this makes sense. If this God absolutely brought you back from the dead spiritually, gave you life, if he's absolutely forgiven you and sanctified you and, and glorified you, he's promised you heaven and secured it for you, and oh, wow, then it makes sense to surrender yourself to this kind of a God as an act of worship. 
And as you do that, it even goes on to say, which is acceptable or well-pleasing to God. In other words, God desires this type of response. Now, as we wrap up, I'm going to kind of blow your mind with a big chart. And, um, but I think I just want you to today focus on the big idea in the chart. Because over the coming weeks, we'll come back to this, Okay but I wanted to get it out in front of you. And in fact, if you really like it and you want to study it for your life group, uh, we can email it out. If you just say, hey, Dale, send me a copy of this and I'll give it to you. But I started thinking this week, you know, where are you and where do you want to go? And it really begins with asking those questions. Where are you? What's my destination? But then as I think about how do you make progress based on today's passage only, the big question is this, what are you presenting to Jesus? I think that's the big question of the morning. Let me show you my chart. Where are you? We'll build it quickly. I think you probably fall into one of these five categories. We'll define them in coming weeks. But some of you are here just because you're at least seeking. You're interested, but you don't believe yet that Christ is your answer. Others of you are pretty new in your faith and you're a new believer or no, you've been that a while and now you're kind of a growing follower of Jesus. Um, you know, and others have grown enough that you'd say, you know, I, I think now I'm actually becoming more mature as, as a disciple of Jesus. And others, the goal, according to this passage, is like the Apostle Paul said, Christ is my life. I call it the Christ-centered life. And that's going to be the goal throughout the whole series. But how, how you fall can, can kind of differ. For example, who's your Jesus? For the seeker, well, you're not really sure yet. For the new believer, he's the Savior. For the growing follower, he's more the teacher. For the maturing disciple, he's, they realize he's my Lord. But for the Christ-centered person, he's more than just your Lord. He's your life. See the progression? And probably in different times in my life, I could be at any of these stages. So I want to challenge you this week to be thinking about who am I? Where, who's my Jesus? Who's my Jesus? And how you answer that is somewhat based too on who am I in Christ? And this was the first half of Romans. You know, not sure or maybe my securities in Christ as a new believer. I know that I'm forgiven of my sins. But you know, what about your competence what about your significance? What about your identity in Christ? And the goal is for your identity to be based in Jesus. And that's why this whole series will come back to this. But today, let's talk about worship. What is worship? See, you know, I think for a lot of people, it's, the, it's a service I attend once a week, come late to by 15 minutes, and then leave as soon as I can. I'm sorry. Let's just at least realize, where are we? Or, no, it's something, others would say, it's a, high, it's, it's a highlight of my week. It's a, it's a joy. I, I, I come with a full heart, ready to go, ready to learn, ready to worship. You know, and, and maybe you're there. That's okay. See, wherever you are on this chart, remember, you're covered by God's grace. So my chart isn't intended to beat you up. It's intended to help you be honest, though, and say, so where am I? I mean, is worship just kind of a church service for me? Or is it my personal time with God? Or is it living to glorify God in my everyday life? Or is it, has it become a 24-7 lifestyle? See, that's the question. What is your worship? Now, this really helped me as I prayed this. How do you come into worship? What's your goal for being here? 
Is it to receive from Jesus? Because I, I, Jesus, please give me what I need. Or is it now to grow in Christ? Or do you come more, hey, I worship, I come to give. And not just talking about giving money. I'm talking about giving my heart, my praise, my attention, my mind. My, you know, that really I show up on Sunday to give. Or I meet with God alone during the week because I want to give something to God. See, it's interesting how often people that don't like a church say, you know, I don't like that church because I don't get enough out of it. I don't get enough out of Pastor Dale's sermon. I don't really get enough out of that song that we sing. You might be surprised to learn that real worship is not about getting anything. Deeper worship is about saying, you know, God, I just want an opportunity to give you more. Don't shortchange my opportunity to give as an act of worship. To be a living sacrifice is really the goal. And then I end with this one. As you leave worship, what do you think? You know, for the new believer, it's like, well, what did I get today? Maybe as you grow, you shift to saying, what did I learn today? As a mature disciple, maybe you say, what did I give today? But it hit me this week. Here is the real heart of worship is when you leave asking, what am I holding back today? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holding nothing back. Do I do that every day? No. Is that my destination that I want to get to? Yes. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for what you teach us about worship, about your son, about all that he did for us. And Father, I pray that as the band comes to lead us in a couple songs, that even if we run a little bit over time, the rain gives us no reason to rush. And we can enjoy you and sing to you and to your glory. We love you. But we pause, Father, to say, help us this week as we go to our life groups and as we reflect on this message. Help each of us to ask the question, where am I? Where do I want to go? And when am I willing to take that first big step of saying, God, I give you me, me. In Christ's name, amen.